Today we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians, which I'm excited about. This passage actually today is a passage God used to uh, make me um, a, a pastor, I guess. That's like a simple way to say it. So I'm excited to teach it. Uh, but first, my favorite book, uh, or one of my favorite books, is a book called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. It's written by a man named Jonathan Saffron Four. Anyone read that book? Sweet. These guys, oh, people saw the movie. It's another great uh, movie that, uh, that Tom Hanks ironically ruins the story. Like, that's a rare occurrence that that happens. People are saying, never, blasphemy. Uh, but in this book, it's the story of a family grappling with loss. More specifically, it's about this boy named Oscar, uh, he's, whose dad had died in 9-11. And it's the story about this family and their suffering that existed long ago, and their suffering that exists in that moment and in the day uh, that they were living. Uh, it's about loss, and, and it's about hope, and it's about joy, it's about, you know, there's nothing left in this world. It's, it's actually a novel that's a pretty decent case for atheism, at least on an emotional level, so if you're interested in reading something like that, uh, it's one of my favorite books. Um, and in the book, though, there's this powerful moment uh, with the grandfather. Uh, the grandfather is this person who had survived incredible suffering uh, during World War II. Uh, he had been one of the lone survival, survivors of the Dresden bombings. Uh, he was a, a person who managed to get his life to New York City and build some sort of sustainable life. He had a child who grew up and who was pretty successful for an immigrant child. Uh, and yet, he's also a person who abandoned his wife and his child and then he was sort of relegated to living in an apartment across the street from his family where he would watch through the windows his son, his daughter-in-law, his grandson, his, his ex-wife live their lives. Uh, but this, the, the son uh, or the grandson, Oscar, would visit him. And, and there's a point sort of in the middle of the book where the, this grandfather confesses something. He says, sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. He says very powerfully, sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all the lives I'm not living. Uh, this picture of this man looking across the street at this abundant life happening, yet he's not engaged in it. It's a life he's let go of. It's both the life that, that he lost, but also the life he chose to lose. And I think, uh, honestly, we have lost sight of life ourselves. I think that that could be spoken of us too. If you were to look back on your daily life and say, I'm, I'm kind of living under the weight of these lives I'm not living and then I think, honestly, if you look at what accounts for the Christian life today, we could say a very similar thing. Uh, and I fear that our refrain really would be, as, as the church uh, in this city, the church in this country, this world would be, we can hear our bones straining from the life of a church that we're just not living. Uh, just to, to make that like, more clear, I think we've, we've sort of relegated Christianity to this thing that we can sort of separate ourselves from. 
uh, this life of following Jesus, this abundant life that the Scriptures talk about, we're actually just in this apartment across the street looking at from a distance, barely getting connected to. We separate ourselves that way. Uh, We choose to abandon this abundant life because we want to dedicate ourselves to some structure to follow. Or we want to dedicate ourselves to some state of being we're just trying to hold together. Or that we're just trying to live out some family tradition. Like everyone I know has been a Christian. So I'm just living it that way. Separated from the weight of a life that we're supposed to be called to and live. Or that we simply make Christianity and following Jesus some part of our life, but not our full life. Just like the grandfather, he had these encounters weekly with his grandson. Yet he didn't live a life with his grandson. We've made church something that we do, an organization to participate in, but we haven't made the life of the church an identity of just who we are in life. I think Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1 through 16, which is our passage today, I think in that Paul really describes something that we struggle to fathom. I think Paul gives us an imagination for a life that we uh, can't imagine ourselves, that we struggle to imagine. So I want us to be uh, brave, and I want us to embrace this passage um, far more than just knowing new information or following disciplines or upholding some structure as a church, but that we would actually be brave enough to put ourselves under this passage and imagine what, what Paul is imagining for our lives. So I'm going to read... Ephesians chapter 4, now. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with all patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And so he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. Amen. There's a few people excited about it. 
Paul begins uh, this chapter with the phrase, uh, I urge, therefore. Uh, this, this chapter marks a shift in the whole book. The first three chapters, Paul's been explaining in very eloquent terms what uh, the gospel is, who God is, what he's done, what he's done for us. And then this sort of marks this shift, this sort of singular uh, word of therefore pushes us to say, oh, there's this new thing like coming now. Uh, this word therefore uh, is, a, is a marker for now Paul's going to talk about how do we live a life underneath this truth about God. That the truths about who God is and what he's done don't just matter in sort of armchair debates about who God is, and it's like kind of wonderful pipe and beer uh, sort of conversations, but it actually matters to daily life. And that's what Paul's doing when he says, therefore. And he's trying to let us know that everything that he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 needs to be understood for us to, to know the rest. Uh, you, if you just take chapter 4 on its own and say, yeah, here we go, there's no motivation or there's no understanding for why we would live chapter 4. That's why he says, therefore. But also, uh, just in Greek rhetoric, the, the therefore is not just, hey, we need to understand this stuff before we go on to the second thing. Kind of like chapters 1 through 3 are prerequisites in this education of life. The therefore is actually the motivation. Paul is sort of saying, because everything else is true, I'm motivated to tell you what I'm about to say. That it's not just a matter of understanding, but it's why I'm compelled to now say what I'm going to say. That's what therefore means. And if you haven't been with us for the first six weeks of this, let me just uh, break down what some of those therefores might be. In chapter 1, he says, you've been adopted into the family of God. So in chapter 4, Paul says, therefore I urge you to live a life. Chapter 2, he says, Christ died for you while you were dead. Therefore, I urge you to live. God has given you every spiritual blessing. Therefore, be the church. Because you've been raised up, therefore, I urge you to walk. Because God's rich, unfathomable love has been lavishly given to you, therefore, I urge you. You've been seated with Christ in the most heavenly places with the authority that Christ has given us. Therefore, live a life. You are the very dwelling place of God. Therefore, live. Because God's Spirit's power has been given to you, live. I urge you. You've been brought near to God, those who are far away. So I urge you to walk in a life worthy. He says, therefore, all of these things, I urge you. This word urge has kind of fallen out of our vernacular. Uh, It's kind of become synonymous with maybe like a temptation of something. I just had this urge, you know, to punch Chris Paul in the face. Uh, Anyone who watched the Lakers game, there was a few. Uh, not quite the LeBron James. I was really watching the game hoping there'd be a cool illustration for this morning, and that was the only one. (laughs) This word, urge, uh, the word here really it is to encourage or to exhort or very literally to call out. At the root of this word is to call someone, 
to call someone out in a very positive way, to call someone up. This is the same root and word that Jesus uses when he describes his Holy Spirit, that he would send someone who would urge us to remember all that Jesus taught and to live the life that Jesus taught us to live, that the Holy Spirit is this helper that's empowering us to live a life. Paul is saying, I'm coming alongside you to push you forward. It's, it's both a comfort and a challenge. And, and I kind of want us to understand the differences of language that's being used. Uh, the first three chapters uh, before uh, this, Paul is using the language that can most simply be described as proclamation. He's just very poetically and beautifully saying, this is what's true. Like, this is who God is. This is what's been going on in the world all along. This is the story of creation to restoration. This is what God has done in you. It's proclamation. He's been saying this is what God does. This is what he's done. Uh, He's been preaching. Not in the, like, wagging of the finger. Like, if you Google preaching, it's a person doing this. But he's been declaring just the excellencies of this whole mystery that God's infinite love has been directly poured out on you and me. And that preaching language is very important in the life of the church. Like, we need to have, like, what I'm doing right now happen. Like, we need to have the good news just declared. And we need to declare that to one another. It's important language in the church. We need to hear it. There's also another language that Paul's going to use starting in chapter, uh, the last half of this chapter, and into five and six. And it's this imperative language or didactic language where he's going to say, this is how you literally live. This is the rule for life. This is the wisdom of God made real. You know, like uh, do honest work. Like that comes at the end of chapter four. Live uh, holy sexual lives. That, that actually happens. It's, it's the, the language of ethics and how to live. It's imperatives. You must do this if you believe this. And that is super important language to use, like in the life of the church. Uh, for us to grow up into maturity, we need the gospel to be preached to us. We also need to be told one to another, hey, this is how we should live. Like this is there's a literal right and a wrong. It's not all vague. Like, there's some specific things that we would do uh, in light of who God is and what he's done. And so our culture, though, uh, within Christianity, probably what you grew up in or what you grew up seeing from a distance, has really majored in the didactic language. This is how everyone needs to live. And then we've kind of minored in the proclaiming language. Like every now and then, we need someone to give like a rah-rah speech about the gospel, and some people will believe. But all of us who have already believed, we just need to be told over and over again how to live. And I think both of those are important. But what we have not taken any classes in at all is on the language of calling out, of encouragement that Paul is doing here in these 16 verses. This language of, hey, be who you were meant to be. And and this is something we miss all the time in the life and the chaos of Christian community. He's challenging us to live the life that we've freely been given. He's coming alongside us to imagine a life that we were made for. 
that we were saved into, a life that we've already been empowered to live. He's saying, just live that life. It's the language of a friend that comes alongside you and says, let's go on an awesome journey together. Let's do the journey of a lifetime. Let's go on the path of abundant joy. Let's live a life that's just full of who God is and His presence and His love, that we would just say that and pursue it. And that's what Paul's saying when he says, I urge you therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He isn't offering new rules or tasks or even new statements to believe. He's simply saying, if everything I've said before is true, if all of the adoption and the love and the being raised up and the infinite love that God has for you in Jesus, if all of that is true, then live a life that reflects that. Let that be who and what you do. Let it be invasive into every crevice of your life. He says, walk worthy. I love this phrase. Walk worthy. Do a life accordingly. Do a life that's in congruency with your calling, he says. Or or your vocation. That's our Latin-inspired word for calling, is vocation. And in our post-industrial world, uh, vocation is the same as our occupation. You know, like, uh, I'm just called to be a lawyer, so that's, and that's what I get paid to do. You know, in high school, that's what we train us to do. Or if you're like me in, you know, sophomore or junior year of college, when you're trying to decide what to do with your life, or after you've already spent like 60 grand, because uh, it was a while ago, now that'd be like a lot of wasted money. Uh, we say, what's your vocation? What are you going to do vocationally in this world? But that's not the same thing as our occupation. A vocation is something you're called to do in all of life. An occupation is a task that you've been given, the special skills that you've acquired. An occupation is something that you clock into and clock out of. You either do the job, like so many of us are in the gig economy, right? You finish the gig and you're on to the next one. Or uh, you clock in and, or the time is up for the day. They don't want to be paying you around here anymore. You should go leave. Uh, that's, uh, those are the jobs I've had. Get out of here. <laughs> but a vocation or a calling is something about who you are. It's who you are uh, in your job. It's who you are outside of your job. And a calling Uh, can't be contained to an office or a studio or a chore list or a timesheet. A calling is just something you are whether you're being paid to do it or not and while you're being paid to do it or not. It's like an artist uh, is an artist whether anyone buys their paintings or not. All the while they look at the world as an artist. It's a calling they have to make beauty or to Describe to us what's true about the world. It's a compelling life, right? And you don't become an artist when someone buys your first painting, right? You just, you already are. 
I love talking to people who are actually gifted artists, and they'll describe how when they were three or four years old, they were already doing pictures better than I could ever draw. They were already making statements about the world when they were nine or ten that we, like, barely even can interpret, right? That's an artist. There's other vocations we have as husbands, as wives, as friends, uh, as fathers, as mothers. Like, it's just something you are, right? So when Paul says, I urge you to live a life, to walk in the manner of your calling, he's saying, do all of the stuff of life, every aspect of life, as a person who's been called a son of God, as a person who's been called the body of Christ, as a person who's been called the dwelling place for the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, live every aspect of your life like that like that calling, as the wisdom of God, as the image of God, as the masterpiece of God. So then let me just kind of do this language for a second. Live your life with a cadence empowered by everything that comes before Paul's therefore. Live a life identified by the truth of the gospel in every facet that the truth of God's love in Christ would be known to you in the bill pain, in the conflict, in the pain, in the sorrow, in the family entertainment, in the, the work, in the traffic, in all of the mishaps and bonuses of life, that all of it would be overflowing with the presence of God who says, I will do everything to make those who are far away near. Like, let that truth impact every part of your life. I hope that some of you have had siblings like that in your life who come to you and say, hey man, like, you were actually created for something. You have all these skills, you have this story, you have this perspective of the world. Like, stop, you know, just fiddling around in mom and dad's house. Like, go out there. Be who you were made to be. That is what we get to be in the church. That's the, the calling out language. And then he goes on to describe just the nature of this abundant, full life where God's presence and his message impacts everything. He says that we would do this in verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What I like here is he describes the good life, the abundant life, the life that he's urging us to live. Is that rather than a, a, a new, now a picture of rules, he's just giving us these like characteristics of what that would look like. But what I like more about this list of things, this humility, gentleness, patience, eagerness for unity, is that you cannot do it alone. There's no abundant life in some tower somewhere. In fact, what Paul is assuming is that we would all think, when he says, Live a, walk a life worthy of the calling, that he's talking about us in step with a whole bunch of other people. He's assuming that this abundant life we would perceive as communal. 
It's assumed that we're not just called as individuals to make our mark on this world, but that we're called together. You've been given a new identity. Not just are you called to be in Christ, but you're called to be in, the, in Christ and in Christ's community. This word, even ecclesia, gets thrown out a ton in the New Testament, and it simply means the called out and the called together. And that's what gets used over and over again to describe what the church is. It's the called together. It's the ones that are assembled because they've been called to a life together. And this is the life. A life of gentleness and kindness and love to one another. And we do that. That's the nature of this life that I encourage you to live. That Paul encourages you to live. That Christ desires for you to live. And why do we do that? Like, why, what's even the power for that? Paul says, because there's one hope. In verse, five, he sa- or verse 4, he says, there's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, over all, and through all, and in all. He, he says, why do we do this? Because we have this creed for life. There's one. And sort of echoing Deuteronomy 6.4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Here Paul says, there is one hope. There's one Lord. There's one Spirit. There's one church. There's one Father. And this is the creed and the belief that drives all humility to one another. This is what drives all urging of one another to live an abundant life. All patience that we show, even all love for one another. It's not because we have this beautiful concept of like, you know, community at its best where everyone follows the rules. Like at, at Nora's school, there's like seven you know, virtues for life. And if they could just shame and guilt enough kids into doing those seven virtues, we'd have a beautiful society. No, here what he's saying is there's actually not like seven virtues or long laws or huge federal budgets. He's just saying there's one body, one spirit, one hope, and that transforms everything. And if you live a life, so the urging is like, if you think there's multiple hopes, then you failed the first part. You failed to be encouraged in the first part. If you think there's many opinions... Many ways forward. He's saying, no, like you've missed the point. Or if you think, man, I can't be with those people. They have different you know, views than I do on like, if LeBron James is a good teammate or not. <laughs> then you've also missed the point. If you're going to find all these crevices and, and disagreements to make you not part of the body, then you've also missed the point. Because what he's saying is, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is a creed opposed to the creed of their society which says there's one emperor. Here they're saying there's one king and he's rescued us all. And then he goes on to describe just the authority of that king, that, that Jesus, the Christ, the, the, the king who has rescued us, he's the one that descended into earth, and then when he was raised and he ascended, he had in his wake a host of captives, 
who were set free. I, what I love about Paul is that he can't really just get away from the preaching part. He always just wants to bring us back to the preaching part. That Christ is the one who's the king over all, that he might fill all. But as Jesus ascends, as he leaves his church, where he says, it's better for you guys to be one another under this belief, living this life. He says, and I've given you gifts to be the church. God gives gifts to the church. He gave apostles, he gave prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave shepherds, he gave teachers. All for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of ministry or the work of service, of the work of living this life. I love it that God continues just to give us gifts. Uh, It's like in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia where each of the four children receives this gift from Santa Claus. Like if you believe it, it's kind of strange. But uh, they each receive these gifts, these four children, in light of the gifts that they already have, in light of their personalities, in light of their nature. They've been given all these different gifts. Uh, and, And that on their own, they can't really win the battle. But that, that, that Aslan has given them these gifts so that they would be ready for battle and each one of them, using what they have, would be victorious. Right? Anyone read Chronicles of Narnia? It's like an like intro to life. <laughs> and that is exactly what Christ has done. That's what C.S. Lewis is describing for us as a, in a children's tale. When, when Christ ascends and he gives us the church, when he calls us not in, just into Christ, but into Christ's community, he's calling us to use our gifts and our abilities and all of our strengths, but he's also giving us this spirit-empowered ability to build one another up. That we do not do it on, the, on our own. And, and one of the things, I, I grew up in, the, in a house of a pastor my grandfather was a pastor. Uh, I began preaching my first sermons when I was 16 years old. And I did not want to do that. Like, I saw pastoral, you know, like, ministry. It's a guy who's a hero, who shakes a lot of hands, who's like kind of a politician. Not that my grandfather and my dad were pretty good, but uh, there was a lot of smiles. <laughs> that they kind of held everything together. That the metric of whether or not they were a good pastor or not was whether they did all of the work of the church or not. Like they were supposed to be the ones that cared for people, that resolved conflict for everyone, that spoke the truth to everyone, that went to every need and met everything. They were sort of outsourced Jesus for the whole body. And when I read this passage as a 21-year-old college kid, I began to realize, like, this is what my life is all about. It's to be part of a church where I equip others for the work of service so that my job would be to see all of you equipped and able to do the work yourselves, of the building up of the body, not that I have to do it all. So that's just a tidbit into my life. But that's the beauty of the church, that each one of us is not just icing on the cake, or it's a really good bonus when someone comes into our church and has like a gift of some kind. It's that we need everyone's gifts, even to live this life. 
And then I like in verse 13 to 16, he describes the goal of all of these people being together in the church, the goal of their giftingness even. In verse 13, he says, until we attain the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That the goal of the body, the goal of this abundant life, is nothing short than the measure of the fullness of Jesus. It's nothing short than knowing the Son of God. It's nothing short than the full unity in the faith. It's pretty remarkable that we would, he later describes in verse uh, 15, that we would be speaking the truth in love, that we would grow up in every way, that every part of our lives would see maturity, understanding God's love for you. And all of that is in resistance to what he describes in 14. A life, a community in resistance and in contrast to being tossed to and fro by every headline, by every suffering that occurs, by every moment in our lives, but that we would actually be steadfast. That we would actually be secure, that we would be a body that says we won't do selfishness, we won't do egos, we won't deceive one another, we won't be distracted, but we will care for the world because we've been people that have received the love of God. And that we are a people that are able to communicate to one another the very depths of the gospel. This is uh, the vision for our church. I think, verses 1 through 16. Uh, This is what we hope to be as Soma, Culver City, or any church that gets planted out of ours. That we would be a church that calls one another to live the full life. A full life in community. A full life where we build one another up. Where there's all of this talking that he describes here that every joint being properly working together so that we grow up in love. That's like what it's all about. Like this is, if you're wondering, like, what's Christianity? What is the church? We get distracted by architecture and, uh, you know, church government and politics of like who gets to be in charge of what? And we say that's what the church is. This is what the church is. It's pretty awesome. And this is what our vision is for our church. And that's what we hold dear and close, that we would be a body growing up that we would be living a life worthy of the calling we've been given. And that is such a noble task. And I just, to like be a little clear, like missional communities exist to help us do that. Like the vision of our church is not a structure of missional communities. We believe and we have convictions around missional communities being like a phenomenal and spirit-empowered and worthwhile way of organizing everything in our church so that we are equipped in every way, that we are growing up into maturity. A missional community is a group of people learning to follow Jesus, learning to walk worthy of our calling in such a way that our neighborhoods and our city is made new. A missional community is the context where we urge one another to live a life in truth, a community where we speak the truths of Jesus to one another, 
where we proclaim the gospel and encourage people in the gospel and teach a life in the gospel. So yeah, this is a noble thing, right? Uh, and, I, and it cannot be accomplished if we're not adopted, if we're not made alive, if we've not been given every spiritual blessing, if we're not empowered by the Spirit. It's such an honor to be the church. Like, this is a good life. The best of lives. So I just encourage us to take hold of the life, not to be like Oscar's grandfather that just sat there from a distance watching it through the window, but that we would live a life built up in faith. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the good news that you descended into the earth that you came to live in the lowest of places with us, that you might raise us. God, I thank you for the giftedness of this church. I thank you for your spirit-inspired giftedness in every community. Thank you for building us up as a body, for joining us together. God, I pray that we would be a people of encouragement, to live a life that you've called us to live. Help us to walk worthy. Reminded of the prayer that uh, comes before this passage. That we would have the strength to comprehend the good news. That we'd have the strength to live it. And to understand it and to know it. Thank you, Jesus, for all you're doing within us. Amen.